Okay, uh, welcome ladies and gentlemen. Can you hear me? Okay. You don't have to listen to me for too long, so I'll be glad of that. Uh, welcome to the 2017 uh, Festival of Ideas. Uh, we're delighted to welcome you. This is uh, our first day, our first event. Um, I'm only here to ask you uh, that, and to let you know if there is a fire alarm, it's not a drill, so please uh, make sure you know where the fire exits are. They are basically back the way you came. Uh, to ask you also, what you will get a um, uh, form, an evaluation form emailed to you. If you fill that in, that's incredibly useful to us. And that's pretty much all, all I have to tell you. Um, and I'll introduce uh, Tanya Feiler, who's going to introduce the rest of the panel today. Um, populism, when, when Tanya came to me with the idea for this uh, event, I thought, you know, this year's theme is truth. And populism feeds into that in so many ways because it's not only something we can look at in terms of, you know, we, we think about politicians lying um, and, you know, obviously the, the opposite of truth, but populism is one of those things that we all instin instinctively think that we know. But actually, when you ask someone, what is populism, there are many different ways that you can interpret that answer. And, you know, that, that's a different idea of truth. You know, what, really, what is populism anyway? Um, so I hope we have some really good discussion today. And I'll pass over to Tanya. Well, thank you, Ariel, um, and thank you, everybody, for joining us this evening um, for our discussion of populism and truth. When we were putting together this panel, we wanted to stage a robust discussion, both about our contemporary moment, um, that acknowledge the seeming kind of strangeness and unfamiliarity of some of what we're living through at the moment, both in Europe and the US. Um, but we also wanted to not acknowledge that these experiences of populism aren't necessarily the only versions of it. Um, and we hope that thinking about the ways a variety of populist leaders um, engage with truth and mobilize certain concepts of truth will help us to do that. Um, so in a moment, I'm going to introduce my co-panelists, um, and then we'll each speak for about eight minutes on a different populist leader. We'll then open up to questions and answers, um, and hopefully have an interesting comparative discussion about some of the cases that we're talking about this evening. Um, so I'm going to introduce our panelists in the order that we're speaking tonight. Um, so speakers, perhaps you can lift your hand or wave when I mention your name. Um, so we have Aicha Chubukchu, um, who's Assistant Professor of Human Rights at the London School of Economics, and will be speaking on Recep Erdogan. Uh, next, we have Nainika Mathur, who's Associate Professor of the Anthropology of South Asia at the University of Oxford, and she'll be speaking about Nayendra Modi. Um, next, we have Hugo Drochon, um, who's a Research Fellow here at Cambridge at the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities, and he'll be talking about Marine Le Pen, Next, we have Madeleine Reeves, uh, who's a senior lecturer in social anthropology at the University of Manchester. And she's going to be discussing Vladimir Putin. Uh, and finally, we have Matthew Barr, who's lecturer in public policy, also here at Cambridge, and he will be talking about Donald Trump. Um, and I will be speaking about Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner. So.
Okay, so on 18th January 2015, Alberto Nisman, a special prosecutor, uh, was found dead of a gunshot to his head in his apartment in Buenos Aires. In 2004, the then president, Nestor Kirchner, had appointed Nisman to investigate the 1994 bombing of the Amiad Jewish Center in downtown Buenos Aires. And Nisman's death was particularly shocking uh, because he was due to present evidence before Congress a day later that would implicate the then president, Cristina Fernandez, the widow of Nestor Kirchner, um, in covering up the role of Iran in the bombing. And among the massive unknowns that surrounded the death, there were very few facts in public circulation. Conspiracy theory and conjecture abounded, um, and they were engaged by citizens, by the media, and by political actors as well, including the president. So I want to spend the next few minutes thinking about two particular ways in which the president, uh, Cristina Fernandez, responded to Nisman's death and what in turn these political communication strategies might tell us about the kind of Peronism, a kind of form of populism that she practiced more generally. Because I think at the core of tonight's discussion is the question of how populist leaders make claims to knowing the truth that compel audiences, even if they don't necessarily have facts on their side. Um, so just to start with a, a, a quick dive into political context, in the 1940s, amid popular dissatisfaction with liberal elites, Juan Perón, a popular labor leader, rose to prominence, and he energized and politicized both workers and others. And his leadership gave rise to Peronism, um, a populist movement that, though changing in shape and character over the decades, has been the main polarizing line in Argentine politics to date. So Peronism has a couple of really powerful central characteristics. It has a vertical leadership structure, um, which promotes the figure of the leader as the best interpreter of the will of the people, and therefore kind of invests them with, a, with an almost divine authority. And then alongside that, and perhaps almost in contrast, um, Peronism constructs a sense of direct contact between the leader and citizens. Um, so it follows that any appearance of opposition can only be the construct of an anti-national other than. Um, and in Kirchnerism, so that's the kind of Peronism uh, that Cristian Fernandez practiced, that other was committed to neoliberal economic interests, especially in the wake of the financial crisis in the early 2000s, um, excessive globalization, and was not particularly interested in human rights. So that's the other that she conceived of. So I want to suggest that Fernandez bolstered these two facets of Peronist authority through mobilizing two types of truth claims um, during her presidential career. And we're now gonna look at a, a couple of examples of this uh, following the death of Alberto Nisman. So I'm gonna call these two styles the invisible and the visible, and to start with the invisible. So following her initial so silence uh, after Nisman's death, Fernandez intimated that Nisman had committed suicide. But just a few days later, she backtracked, and on her website and Facebook page, this is uh, her website, um, under the subheading, the suicide that I'm convinced was not a suicide, there are Spanish speakers, you can read it, read it in small letters up there. Um, Fernandez explained that she had no evidence, but no doubts either, 
that Nisman had been the victim of a political murder plot. Without identifying who the apparent murderers were, um, but suggesting Secret Service involvement, she argued that they used him alive and then they needed him dead. So the, the conspiracy was not really about Nisman, she argued, but was a plot to weaken her government. So the enemy she constructed actually was targeting her government, not Nisman specifically. And by extension, of course, in the populist logic, the people overall. So crucially in this claim, Fernandez didn't suggest that she had evidence that she couldn't share, but instead that her analysis was based on a kind of innate understanding of what had happened, um, which was reason alone for her followers to accept her interpretation of events and any actions that she then premised on it. So this claim fed directly into the vertical nature of Peronist rule. The people were guided to have an almost religious faith in her knowledge that nullified the need for visible evidence. Uh, and this evidentiary absence didn't dent her authority, but in fact reinforced it. So now to turn to another kind of truth claim where apparent visible evidence was in real abundance. So fast forward to 18th February 2015, where members of the Argentine judiciary organized a multi-party silent rally. And the official demands of the organizers included investigatory independence uh, and justice in both the Nisman cases and the Amia case, the, the initial bombing. Um, and the rally was very much of its age. It extended across time zones as people congregated not only up and down the country, uh, but also outside embassies and consulates abroad. And photos and videos were posted online for many hours. And in, the, in its mass turnout, so 400,000 people in Buenos Aires alone, according to many reports, um, and its online visual endurance, the rally posed a direct and seemingly ongoing threat to the idea of the people, the pueblo, united behind Fernandez. And her reaction, I think, was really interesting because she presented the stated ambitions of the rally as a cover-up, um, identifying what she called a hidden and implicit objective in the mass gathering instead. She said it was purely and simply an opposition rally. But what was really interesting was that she said the rally had been visually manipulated by the media, with which it had a, a long-standing feud. And she point, pinpointed specifically gestures, photographs, and their use of perspective, and the accompanying texts as all coming together to produce an inflated image of real levels of support. In offering this really detailed visual analysis, Fernandez directly offered to show her followers the truth, to let them see as if with her eyes. So that's how she produced this sense of direct contact with the people that Peronism demands. So to return to that question, how do populists make compelling claims to know the truth, if, even if they don't have facts at their disposal? In the case of Fernandez, we have on the one hand the claim to knowing without needing evidence, the invisible style, and on the other, we have a seeming overabundance of evidence available for all to see, the visible. Alternating between these two styles at various moments in her presidential career, I believe provided Fernandez with a powerful rhetorical mechanism for maintaining both the hierarchical side of Peronism with its almost religious structure, and then also the sense of direct contact with the people uh, that her popular legitimacy required. So both of these styles of truth claims have emotions at their core. They have vast emotional capital. 
when we think about populism and emotions, we tend to think about fear. But I think that Fernandez's use of these strategies enabled her to make a broader range of emotive bids. The apparent interpretive capacities that both styles of truth claims intimated could induce a sense of awe. Uh, meanwhile, the invitation to shared vision uh, may have promoted a sense of empathy, of not being alone in a fragile world. Facts alone don't necessarily offer that comfort. They also don't acknowledge that politics is inherently emotional. So if I can end with a provocation that extends beyond Argentina, it would be to say that rather than retreating from political narratives on the grounds that storytelling is what populists do, we need to reclaim the art of political storytelling and open up a space for the expression of political emotions beyond fear and veneration alone. We need to find a way instead to tell political stories that are both fact-based and maintain a space for pluralism. Thank you. I'll hand over to our next speaker now. Thank you. 
thinking about the situation in our country of nearly populism. We're facing a problem of a different order, I think, altogether. In the summer of 2016, I'm not even attempting to summarize to you what has happened over the past decade in Iran Syria. Just sticking to the last year, in the summer of 2016, a state of emergency uh, was already Thank you. 
UI team uh, and the state of emergency. I'm talking about 4,000 professors, 4,000 professors who have been dismissed from their jobs. I'm talking about hundreds and thousands who have had to leave the country because they are facing legal violence. So do you mobilize the law? How can you mobilize the law in a situation where the law is being used against you when the sovereign, who is Erdogan, is able to mobilize the law, uh, not only in the name of the people, but also literally in a state of war against his own citizens. So that's what I have to say to you. So my argument is actually uh, very different from Aicha's argument, and it can be summarized uh, also in one sentence. My argument about Narendra Modi, the current Prime Minister of India, is that he is not uh, ever really thought of as a populist. He's discussed as a Hindu nationalist, but not as a populist. And what I want to talk about here um, in about six, seven minutes is make an argument for thinking about why we can think of Modi as actually being uh, a manifestation of an extremely dangerous form of populist politics. Um, so just as a background, I'm sure all of you know this, but in 2014, uh, Narendra Modi led the right-wing Hindu Nationalist Party, the Bharatiya Janata Party, or the BJP, uh, to a landslide victory in the Indian parliament. Uh, it was unprecedented, it was unanticipated, and uh, it led to this immense euphoria around Modi's personal charisma and capacity uh, to lead the party and become the Prime Minister of India. What was particularly interesting about this is that, uh, about Modi's current uh, position, is that this, co this comprises one of the most remarkable political turnarounds in the history of an Indian politician. Uh, again, as you might know, in 2002, Modi was widely criticized for being Chief Minister of Gujarat and presiding over a pogrom um, in which over a thousand Muslims were brutally killed uh, and about 200 Hindus. These figures are sort of still debated, but Modi was dubbed the butcher of Gujarat. It was, he, he became an international pariah. He was denied entry into the United States. There were human rights cases against him. Um, many of us in India thought that his political career after this is absolutely over. But in 2014, you see him come back um, in this remarkable way, so much so that now um, he becomes, uh, you know, even Time magazine from going from going from being an international pariah to being some someone that the New York Times and Time and even the Guardian, etc., were hailing as um, somebody who could be taking India into the next uh, millennium, so to say. Now. Uh, three years into his reign, the euphoria, the initial euphoria around Modi has somewhat subsided. Uh, it has sobered down. Uh, his, yet the critiques of his work seem to, uh, of him as a politician and as a prime minister, have two broad contours. So he's sometimes criticized for very particular policies, such as the disastrous demonetization uh, of large currency notes in November 2016, um, or for not uh, speaking out against uh, lynchings of Muslims or other minorities. He's also criticized uh, for being, for sticking by a particular form of very majoritarian Hindu nationalism in a country that has prided itself uh, for being secular and liberal. 
However, my argument really is that actually criticizing Modi for just being a Hindu nationalist doesn't actually quite cover uh, the form and the style of politics that he's embodying. And neither does it really tell us why Modi is dangerous or why the form of democracy that we're seeing in India right now is so pernicious. Um, I'm going to just give, just for the sake of time, I'm going to give two examples, two reasons why I think Modi's politics are better described as those of populism than just of Hindu nationalism. And I say just uh, because, of course, Hindu nationalism is very much within these forms of politics. So the first um, way in which I think that uh, Modi really is uh, an epitome of a populist is the way in which he's talked about the Hindu nation or the Hindu Rashtra. Uh, he uses either, uh, he has used and his party continues to use this idea of how uh, Hindu India has been, uh, the so has been under assault by the other, normally by Muslims in this whole region uh, of South Asia. He implicitly uses the concept of a silent majority of Hindus who have been uh, suffering under a particular form of rule since 1947 when India got independence, whereby the other, particularly Muslims, were being appeased to use the language that they use, um, that the BJP and Modi uses. Um, there is absolutely no truth to this claim uh, that actually that minorities have been appeased or that they get special benefits uh, over the majority Hindus. Even just uh, the numbers itself uh, that we're talking about here is that Hindus comprise 80% of India's population or roughly 966 million people. Uh, Muslims constitute 14.2% of India's population or about 172 million people. There is no truth to this claim, but the way in which uh, Modi and the BJP has built up this narrative of um, uh, an oppressed majority is playing on a longer history of polarization in South Asia amongst Hindus and Muslims, but it's also actually building up a lot of hard labor that the right-wing Hindu nationalist parties and their grassroots organizations have done to keep this polarization and communalization of politics going. It also feeds into a much more generic and global Islamophobia that uh, Modi is quite quick to pick up and use quite critically, uh, quite smartly. The second um, way in which I think Modi really epitomizes uh, a, a populist figure is in his anti-elitism. Uh, and this anti-elitism is something that defines him almost more than his Hindu majoritarianism. Uh, in everything. So for instance, his entire campaign in 2013 leading up to the 2014 elections was fought on an argument that he is a chaiwala. Um, a chaiwala is somebody who sells tea. Uh, and a very sneering Congress politician had dubbed Modi this, saying, oh, uh, when he was standing for uh, prime minister, saying a chaiwala can never be prime minister of India. Um, and that classist statement was taken up by him and his extremely canny social media team and turned around to actually brand him as this man of the soil uh, who has struggled through life and is now Prime Minister of India. You see his anti-elitism not just in the self-branding as someone who comes from a very poor background and has now become, is now ruling India from New Delhi, but you see it in the way in which he approaches policy making, the way in which he talks about politics, his daily discourse, just today, uh, he's campaigning in Gujarat for state elections, and he's been talking about how the BJP and Modi are not about dynastic politics, but they're about uh, merit, uh, and they're about people who really work hard and who are true Indians. Now, there is a kernel of truth to this, uh, in the sense that Modi does ha come from very humble backgrounds, uh, and apparently he did actually sell tea. There's no full, uh, you can't 
uh, we don't know this if that's true or not, but he claims he did. Um, and there is also in the contrast he builds up with the Congress party, which is his arch enemy, um, is true that there is a form of uh, a dynastic politics which is there. But it's very interesting to again see how Modi uses this anti-elitism to craft a particular figure. Um, the point is what, what this allows for is for him to come out and speak and say that he represents the will of the people in a way in which no Indian politician before, uh, no Indian prime minister in the history of independent India has been able to do. He's often compared to Indira Gandhi, uh, but we can discuss in the Q&A why I think that actually Modi's populism is of a very different magnitude and a different type from Gandhi's populism uh, and how, uh, in what ways they differ. But um, the argument I really just want to make here is that there is all these other styles of politics that he brings together which allows him to claim that he embodies the will of the people, that allows him to actually make policy decisions and do things in uh, contemporary India which would absolutely not be permissible in previous regimes, uh, such, as, uh, such as, for instance, uh, the demonetization move uh, for which hundreds of people suffered and died, but there has been no um, back, um, there's been no backlash against him on that. Uh, a lot of the, uh, his other new fangled ideas of uh, this sort of techno-utopic future that he imagines for India and the kind of policies he's pushing through, the way he's privatizing uh, large infrastructure projects. Um, there is absolutely no way in which any critique can actually be made for him, uh, particularly uh, by the press or by civil rights activists because of the way in which he now has come to embody the will of the people of India. So I just end there. Thank you. Uh, great. Well, thank you, Tanya, for the invitation to the rest of the panel. Thank you all for being here. It seems like everybody has one argument to make, so I'm going to try to stick to that and only make one argument too. And the one argument I want to explore with you is simply to see this idea how populists try to redefine the political configuration of the political system which they live in. So instead of having a classic left-right divide in politics, they try to posit a new type of political configuration. And that's what I want to explore by looking at the French president the French presidential election and the contest between, on the one hand, the populist leader Marine Le Pen and, on, on the other hand, Emmanuel Macron, and specifically about a debate about a historical um, event which is known as the Veldiv. Um, the Veldiv, you maybe never heard of this, but it's one of the big roundup of, um, of French and European Jews during the Second World War. So it happens on the night of the 16th to the 17th of July, 1942, in which over 13,000 European Jews are rounded up by the French police, of which apparently 4,000 children are part of this. They're brought to the Vélodrome d'Hiver, so the winter Vélodrome, which no longer exists, it was beside the Eiffel Tower. There, and they're parked there for about five days. Um, there also some of them are brought then later to the northern suburbs of Paris to an, uh, to an area called Drancy. Um, if you've never heard of this before, it was popularized, if that's the right way to, the right term to use, it was popularized by um, a book called um, Sarah's Key, which was then made into a film, right? So this is the event we're talking about. It's controversial 
obvious, for obvious reasons, but it's specifically controversial in France because the question is whether it was the Nazis who demanded this of the French state, whether it's the French state that acted on its own, um, on its own behalf. And historically, it seems to have been shown that actually it's the Vichy government who made this decision to round up the French Jews, and they're the ones who implemented it. So it's the French gendarmes who went about doing it. And then there's mixed stories, of course. Some gendarmes, the police forces, would have tipped off certain people so that they would have escaped. Others were slightly overzealous about it and were tried subsequently. So there's a debate that's going on. But in 1995, Jacques Chirac, the then um, president of France, um, formally recognized the French state's role in the events and issued a formal apology. So you have this uh, apology in 1995. Then in 2012, on the 70th anniversary of the Veldive, François Hollande, who's then the prime minister, at the, sorry, the president of the time, he also reiterates um, the apology. Okay. So what's important to underline there is that how it seems to become, it seems to have become a consensual question in French politics. You have both a right-wing president and a left-wing president accepting the French role in the deportation of European Jews. And what I want to, this is the argument I wanted to make, is that populist leaders, one way that they define themselves and they try to recast the political sphere is to take what seems to be consensual um, issues across the left-right divide. So it won't surprise anyone that both in the UK and across Europe, it's often the European Union that becomes the target of populist leaders because there seems to be a soft consensus previously, at least before Brexit, by both left-wing and right-wing parties about, the, uh, about how the country should be part of the European Union. So Marine Le Pen, what they decided to do in the 2017 debate was to reopen this question. The, their argument was to say, actually, the French state, Vichy at the time, that was not the French state. The real French state was in <coughs> London, <coughs> excuse me, with the General de Gaulle, which means that the French state is not responsible for the Veldive. Right, you follow the argument? There was debates, obviously, during the General de Gaulle. The General de Gaulle himself didn't accept that the French state was responsible, but he would have said that clearly because he was trying to say that the French state was in, was in London at the time. But you can hear, the, obviously, the anti-Semitic kind of rhetoric which is underlying um, this type of argument. But you see what's trying to be done here. They're trying to change the discourse. We're saying, okay, well, this is not a left-right. The left and the right both agree, but we're defining ourselves differently, and we're saying the French state is not responsible for this because the French state was in London. It wasn't in Vichy at the time, so we're not responsible. Okay? This became a topic of controversy during um, the French presidential election and then Emmanuel Macron um, in 2017, so um, recently during the election, did come out again and reaffirmed again for one more time um, the, the, the role of the French state in the deportation of the Jews. So that's a historical example. You can see it's also how the topic here is supposed to be populism and truth, how what's attempted to do here is not to, real, is how, is to rethink about truth or, or displace where truth is to be found. So Marine Le Pen and the Front National are not saying that this deportation didn't happen. They're simply saying, we're not responsible. 
because the French state wasn't in France at the time, it was in London. Okay, you get the point. So my, what, my, what I'm proposing to you is this idea that if we really want to understand what this kind of populist wave that we've seemed to have experienced over um, the last year is that we need to think outside of the usual categories in which we organize politics. That is to say, we cannot, can no longer think of politics as organized on a left-right basis. But rather, the populists have imposed on us new political configurations. So Marine Le Pen, in the specific French example, instead of talking about left-right, she said, no, my political party and political movement is beyond the left and right. Rather, the new political cleavage which I am proposing is patriots, or the good people, the French patriots, versus globalists, versus the neoliberal internationalists, etc. And Emmanuel Macron, in response to this, then said, okay, that's your division. My division is um, progressist, progressists and progressivism versus conservatives. And I think that's very revelatory of the type of politics we are moved into in um, a lot of Western Europe. So if you want to step forward and try to understand the populism and the populist wave that we experienced for the last year, we need to think about it and not left-right, but rather something that looks closer to a center-extreme, um, a center-extreme divide, where both sides are claiming that they speak for the center. That is to say, Marine Le Pen claims to be speaking for the true French, white, Catholic, um, you know, French nationalist people against the extreme European bureaucrats, globalists, etc. Whereas Macron then is trying to defend the center defined as um, the, the European conventional center as we would understand it today, which is committed to the European Union project. And the thing is, before in the past, the left and the right used to mutually recognize each other. Today, what we have is political parties that no longer recognize each other, that both of them are competing for the center. So I just wanted to propose that as a thesis to try to help us understand how to organize, understand the populist moment we've lived in today. Thank you very much. Okay, where to fit Vladimir Putin in this uh, constellation? Think Russia and populism together, and certain images probably come to mind. Putin bare-chested in a Siberian river, Putin unsmiling in dark glasses, Putin announcing to Moscow crowds that Crimea is ours, Krim Nash. Putin carefully cultivates domestic popularity, he is anti-pluralist, he is emphatically a conservative and a traditionalist with an expansive view of the civilizational responsibility of the Russian state. He is also acutely attuned to the affective politics of collective appeal and the performative power of language. With the statement, Crimea is ours, rather like, make America great again, the point is not its constative accuracy, but its performative efficacy its capacity to bring something, a feeling, an awareness of political community, of nationhood into being. But is Putin a populist? 
If the term is to have any analytical specificity, I think, it has to denote something more than the capacity to appeal to the interests or desires of ordinary people. Populism entails something more than the successful creation of a cult, of an ubermensch. The Putin is our everything, Putin nasze wsiur, as Moskowski Komsomolets put it in a hagiographic article to mark Putin's 65th birthday last week. Nor is it sufficient to be critical of some contrastive other against whom a singular we can be articulated, against oligarchs, against foreign agents, against US imperialism, although Putin is very skilled at all of these. Populism entails, I think, a moral monopoly of representation, as Jan Werner Müller puts it, the assumption that only we, indeed only I, can speak for the real people, that others who deny such a claim are not part of the moral body of the people. In other words, it is a moralistic imagination of politics, a way of perceiving the political world that, I quote, sets a morally pure and fully unified people against elites who are deemed corrupt or in some way morally inferior. Putin does not quite fit this definition first because his conception of politics is a pragmatic rather than a moralistic one. He may at times appeal to the narod, the people, the people versus foreign agents, ordinary folks versus the oligarchs. But this is selective and contextual rather than consistent. Second, for Putin, the ultimate moral grounds of politics is the state itself. His is not a swamp cleaning kind of politics nor for the most part has it hinged on the kind of anti-immigrant, anti-government or anti-austerity rhetoric mobilised by populists within democratic political formations. Putin is a statist. His political legitimacy has hinged on restoring state capacity, infrastructural reach, the state monopoly on legitimate violence, the vertical of power between Moscow and the regions, all of which were felt to have been destroyed in the 1990s. Indeed, his political communication, orchestrated through informational monopolies and the evacuation of critical journalism from mainstream media, is precisely invested in emphasizing the discursive equivalence between Putin, state, political stability, and geopolitical authority as a great state, such that to question one is to question all three. This has affinities with contemporary forms of populism, but it is distinct from them to the extent that the state in this political imagination is distinct from and emphatically above the people. It is in this sense unapologetically elitist. The image that is orchestrated is less Putin of the people, but Putin, the statesman who is personification of the state, is somewhere between human and God. That this moral equivalency has profound and durable political traction requires, I think, an appreciation for the scale and shock of the state's unravelling that was felt to have been brought about in Russia by Perestroika. If there is one truly unpopular politician in Russia today, it is Mikhail Gorbachev. An analytics of populism, I think, may be more usefully employed to think about the kind of campaign that has turned Alexei Navalny, the 41-year-old anti-corruption lawyer and blogger, into the undisputed leader of Russia's unofficial opposition. Navalny's political program, which includes calls for a monthly minimum wage of about £330, a visa regime with the states of Central Asia and the Caucasus to curb labour migration, and a renewed concern for the fate of Russians beyond the borders of Russia, share similarities with other pro populist programmes, 
that would take back control of a moral community imagined in national terms. But there's something more, and this echoes a bit the argument that Hugo was just making. If we follow Ernest Laclau in attending to the logic of populist reason, we can see that Navalny has been successful precisely in disrupting the official equivalence between Putin government, strong and stable state, into an equivalence between Putin, corruption, and elites that posits us, the people, against them, the corrupt and disdainful elite. His success lies less in his program then than in what Yussi Lassila has called his populist reordering of Putin's eclectic principles of the people, patriotism, and the rule of law. This populist reordering works by linking all sorts of issues, from migration to the state of healthcare, to the perilous state of many of Russia's roads, to a single concern, that of elite corruption. In the case of migration, for instance, Navalny marries Russian ethno-nationalism with a concern for the corruption that proliferates when non-Russian migrant workers are hired off the books. In the case of Rhodes, and there's this wonderful website called Rosyam, um, um, which is Russian potholes, where you can list all of the potholes and get them fixed. In the case of Rhodes, it is to invite collective reporting of potholes and to make the political, ethical, and affective link that says your rotten road is somebody else lining their pockets. As a populist politician, though, perhaps his greatest success has been in making the untouchable laughable, in collapsing the fiction of the state as more than human. In March this year, the anti-corruption organization that Navalny heads published a slick, technically sophisticated, high graphics expose of Dmitry Medvedev's corruption as prime minister and head of the presidential party, United Russia. It used drone footage to reveal unseen datchers in vast complexes, complete with forests and duck houses there in the middle of the pond, yachts, vineyards, and ski slopes. It also used mobile phone footage to show Medvedev's bond, uh, bonds with his university coursemates, the alleged intermediaries, for his corrupt schemes. Entitled, He's Not Dimon to You, the video is a populist masterpiece precisely in its capacity to create equivalential linkages between dispersed social and political demands, our lack of health care, our poor roads, our insufficient pensions, as the result of these corrupt schemes. Importantly, it also interpolates a we, the collective viewer, the people peering with the help of drones over six meter high walls that hide out these datches. The title plays on the political, on, sorry, on the official censure received by bloggers who used excessively colloquial language to describe Dimitri, Dimon, Medvedev. The implication that you, bloggers and journalists, don't have the right to refer to the prime minister in such a crude and colloquial way. The film's response is an emphatic, yes, we do. Its very framing interpolates the watching I into a collective we, united in indignation against a them, Medvedev and his privileged scheming coursemates. The film and Navalny's campaign sheds interesting light, I think, on populism and truth. The administrative and media system that has solidified over the last two decades in Russia is one in which truth is understood to have an intrinsic fragility. In this environment, as Alexei Yurchak has argued, and I quote, control focuses not 
on whether and how facts are represented, but on how they are circulated, discussed and interpreted. The central goal of this practice is not necessarily to fool the audience into believing fake facts and false stories, but rather to convince the audience that the true meaning of facts are unpredictable, contradictory and unknowable. It's precisely this kind of politics, I suggest, an authoritarian, pragmatic etatism, which is how I would like to characterise Putinism, that inflects the political ways in which opposition movements have positioned themselves in regards to truth, moving between an emphatic calling out and critique of the kind that we see in this video of electoral fraud, of local corruption and of lies, to a political language that is itself performative, drawing attention to the absurd at the heart of politics. And we have here this formation called a monstratia, a monstration, where the idea is that you have placards that cannot be deemed to be politically incorrect because they make absurd sorts of statements, like this is a heterosexual placard. Um, even Navalny's recent trial and imprisonment, for instance, were live broadcast and live tweeted turning his punishment into a real-time expose of political manipulation, with Navalny himself laughing dismissively throughout. The question, though, I think, is whether in Russia's hybrid democracy such performative scorn will have political efficacy. And this remains to be seen in Russia's 2018 election. Navalny's own election materials explicitly link his election to the liberation of 1968. This is a sweatshirt that you can order on his um, campaign website. But if populism is democracy's shadow, the very fragility of that democracy in Russia should, I think, make us cautious as to overstating the political traction of a populist opposition. Thank you. Okay, so last but certainly not least, Donald Trump. Um, it's a great pleasure for me to be here. I was asked to step in a little bit at the last uh, minute, but um, forgive me for sharing some personal details with you. Uh, my great-grandfather went to St. John's many, many moons ago, um, and I'm the first generation since then to have any subsequent affiliation with Cambridge. So uh, apart from the fact that it's a great honor to be here anyway, it's uh, lovely that it's also situated in uh, St. John's, so thank you very much. Again, I'm gonna try and stick with the, uh, the one argument, but it, because it's me, it kind of tends to morph into more like two. Um, there's some crossover. But essentially, um, we've talked a lot about these different populists, and obviously Donald Trump and people like Nigel Farage for the locals kind of come in and they're the people we might necessarily sort of immediately think of. But the thing that's interesting about Donald Trump when we're having this discussion about what is populism, you know, to what degree are these leaders populists or not, one of the things that's particularly interesting about Donald Trump is how unpopular he is within the United States. And it's quite easy to forget that at times. So going into the general election, uh, the presidential election last year, Trump was the, since polls of these things have been running, the most unpopular presidential candidate in history. Now, granted, Hillary Clinton was the second, <laughs> but still, it, it, it speaks uh, volumes. And he also lost the popular vote. 
and by quite a considerable margin. Now, obviously, in the US, they operate an electoral college system, so that doesn't necessarily tell us anything because that was, that's how you win. But at the same time, there are these sort of broader questions about political systems. And a useful contrast would be, for example, in 2015 in the UK, uh, when UKIP had nearly four million, over four million votes and only got one MP in our current system. So there is an element of the types of political systems that we're talking about that we need to factor into these uh, sort of discussions when we're thinking about um, populists. Um, so since his uh, election, but before his inauguration, uh, Trump was then the least pop most popular um, presidential nominee. And then when he took office, his approval ratings were the lowest in historical memory. Now, the thing about approval ratings is they tend to drop historically over time, traditionally. So him starting at the baseline that he was, again, suggests that he was incredibly unpopular. But this is where we make a distinction between what he's doing as an administration and as a president and in terms of his political ideals, in terms of the kind of policies that he's putting through and the sort of broader sense of what he represents. So one of the things that's, there's lots of things that's interesting about Donald Trump when we look at it, is that we tend to look at the sort of the gaffes that he kind of comes out with in terms of, you know, when he makes these demonstrably false claims about the size of his inauguration crowd, about the fact that no one had ever got as many electoral college votes that he had. And then when that was pointed out to him, he said, oh, well, I meant as a Republican. They said, well, no, George H.W. Bush got more than you. And he said, well, that's what I was told. And that's the end of that. And whilst these things are, um, rather funny, uh, and his ideas about the fact that he would have won the popular vote if it wasn't for voter fraud, and all these kind of sort of ridiculous things that he comes out that are sort of diametrically opposed to empirical reality, is that this actually speaks to the greater sort of inverted commas truth of what Donald Trump really represents. So on the one hand, he's incredibly unpopular and is surprisingly actually for me, was, is incapable of actually delivering on most of his key things. So despite the fact that he has a Republican uh, Congress and uh, that the members of that Republican Congress are very, very much wedded to the idea of getting rid of Obamacare, he's struggled to achieve this, even within the Republican Party. But yet, he still is considered by his supporters to be the man of the people, so the populist in that sense. And again, this goes to some of the things that have already been touched on and um, that Tanya's talked about already, about this idea about emotional truth. And the response is, especially as scholars and people that frequent buildings like this, um, have to do in terms of how we respond to the rise of Donald Trump. And one of the sort of the biggest sort of things that have come out of it is this idea of there's a distinction between what is personal truth and objective reality. And as a scientist, I hopefully tend to deal in the objective reality phrase. But when we start talking about these things, the people who are saying, well, that's not my truth, that's not my reality, you've already lost the conversation. And then this is where Donald Trump has been able to find his strength. And almost by accident, of almost just blurting out enough stuff um, that he's even admitted himself that he said things like, oh, drain the swamp. When someone told me to say that, I thought it was a ridiculous phrase. I thought it was completely stupid, but I gave it a go and the crowd went wild, so I've kept using it ever since. So there's this sort of reality and post-reality and this creation of 
what is truth and how we respond to it. And again, I think some of the other people have already touched about this on, and it's particularly in terms of this left-right divide, is that in America particularly, the sort of inverted commas underclass that was supposedly served by the Democrats have increasingly become moving towards the Republicans. And one of the things someone like Pippa Norris has recently argued is that it's not to do with the obvious and increasing inequality in terms of economics, because there are other cases like in Sweden, for example, where we're seeing similar kind of things going on, is that actually it's to do with a cultural war, essentially. So what Trump represents is, and when we look at him, it's not so much his complete disdain for empirical reality and his ability to just wash it off, like, ah, eh, I'm not interested in that. But I would say that perhaps the thing that sort of personifies his uh, appeal is most was after Charlottesville was when he said on many sides, when he was talking about the violence between neo-Nazi fascists who want to you know, enact genocide and anti-fascists. And he made a moral equivalence between these two people, these two groups of people, and talking about on many sides. And that's what resonates with, with many of his supporters. And this, again, as, as, uh, as an academic, as a scholar, someone who lives in Cambridge, this is almost anathema in many ways. It, just, it doesn't make kind of logical sense. And that's precisely the point. It's not about objective reality. It's about this emotional truth, and it's about this breakdown of this left and right uh, divide. Um, and supremely problematic, and I think we see 
the referendum admission and status is, the constitutional status of the referendum in, in, in Catalonia, for instance, or the status in international law of the referendum um, in Crimea, right? There was a referendum to legitimize this, however you want to call it, transfer, seizure of power, and so on. So I think this, this kind of the status of referenda as a particular kind of um, uh, political technology is extremely interesting to think about um, its relationship. But of course, you know, you can think about Brexit in this context, which is simultaneously, again, it's held as a, the ultimate um, tool for, for eliciting a politi political will, and in a sense, the ultimate, it, it, uh, I think one should object to the referendum is also to stop the cultivation, right? to stop the democratic cultivation, because it's, 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 it's in a sense, a time marker, and, uh, and, 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 and it has a sort of political saliency that ordinary electoral processes is recognized to be something that is constantly changing. You have an election and you know that that election will be overturned by the election that happened X number of years later. And I think it's just that the, the nature of a referendum um, makes a, a, a distinctive kind of political um, statement. And I think it's therefore very, very interesting to think about the, the internationally, the, 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 the use of the referendum in, in particular political circumstances, the circumstances and so on, um, to legitimize certain kinds of um, um, populist politics.
Conspiracy theories 
which give flesh and cells through the mainstream media, guys like the Daily Bureau, who provided with talk shows, people like Alex Jones, conspiracy theorists, they have this whole, they've built this whole ecosystem of media, all, you know, all private media, which has its own Twitter relays, which has YouTube, that has all these, all these elements to it. And that's led to this vast polarization of society where you have these really important people who In the past, you had, as you're seeing here, you can see the still plays of Seth Rowe, CNN used to play a role. Everybody looked at, had a single point of reference which then people debated their views of or not. Here you don't have that, but centers can completely evacuate and just have very free views on either side. It's far as opinions are very free views on either side. And you've lost the ability to have any kind of rational, kind of moderate discussion in, 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 in between. And so that's really the challenge. I think that's the challenge of the populist that's opposed to the conventional ways of, of, of politics, even if they're still quite close you know, to the political system. And I think the challenge is, is how do you reconstruct um, that center ground? I used Mike Moore as an example of, of sometimes in these trenches, it may be possible to actually speak as a strength base. And I think in the next few, in the next years, I don't know how long, but the real challenge will be that populist versus um, non-populist uh, divide and how those two Populism in a 